Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 30th podcast in our series on American history. In the 29th podcast, we went over the emergence of sectionalism, hammered out in what became known as the Missouri Compromise in 1820. As we talked about, it set the line where slavery was to be banned north of that line. That's what gives the 3630, that's what gives that line almost unaltered line between the East Coast all the way to the state of Nevada. North of that line, slavery was to be banned. South of that line, slavery would be allowed. We also looked that despite the fact that the first major clash over slavery in the post-constitutional convention world was resolved, but Southerners were quickly realizing that they were themselves becoming a minority. We also looked at the first constitutional question in terms of the presidential election of who was going to be the next founding or who was going to be the next president of the United States with the founding fathers either gone uh, due to death or retirement there wasn't a founding father on the ballot as a result the question was who was going to be our sixth president of the United States John Quincy Adams threw his hat in the ring Clearly was going to be a second generation founding fathers, which some bristled at. That was he writing his simply his father's his father uh, coattails, John Adams being the former second president of the United States. On the other end of that political spectrum was Andrew Jackson, largely a nobody prior to the War of 1812. But was America ready for the first, quote unquote, commoner president? In the middle of that, you had Henry Clay, who also threw his hat in the ring but however didn't have the appeal that either Jackson has would had with his supporters or John Quincy had with his as we know and talked about it was then thrown to the house of representatives because it was a tie clay threw his support to adams and adams won the election but it would cost him as we talked about his reelection so here we are in podcast 30 and what we're seeing now is a rise of egalitarianism with the soon to upcoming election presidential election of 1828 with the rise of Andrew Jackson Andrew Jackson was so popular that they were the group that supported him became known as Jacksonian Democrats this was not largely the first time that that had happened. We had talked before about Jeffersonian Republicans. It's also not going to be the last time that we're going to see this, hence the term Reagan Republicans. So what's going on is that the individual is going to have such notoriety 
with the policies that they establish, that the ardent, strong supporters of them become known by the person by that person's last name, and then whatever political party that they are affiliated with. So let's look at what are these characteristics of what becomes known as Jacksonian Democrats, because we know John Quincy Adams is going to be the second now one-term president, ironically enough, held by the same family, the Adams's family. Number two was a one-term, his father, and now Andrew, uh, Andrew Jackson will defeat John Quincy Adams in the election of 1828. So what does Jackson bring to the table here? In terms of the characteristics, he is an ardent, ardent believer in stronger state rights. He's almost more equivalent to the modern-day Republicans. He also believed in, in, or was a firm believer, I should say, in having a lot less of an intrusive government. But there was also something else that was going to be impacting this presidential election of 1828. The ability to vote broadened. It wasn't just the 21-year-old male landowners. Now, owning land was no longer required. Now, clearly, race and gender were still issues that wouldn't be resolved for, in terms of race issues, another three decades, and gender issues wasn't going to be resolved for almost another century. Andrew Jackson's popularity rose out of this. He was, as we talked about in prior podcasts, the uh, war hero of 1812. He was clearly an anti-elitist. He was not born with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't have the political coattails and connections that and that John Quincy Adams had. And he also claimed that because Adams was now a second generation of founding fathers, that Adams and his party were getting more and more out of touch. So what, what happened, therefore, is that the election of 1828 was arguably one of the first presidential elections that was more about personalities rather than issues. And obviously we know it's not going to be the last presidential election where people will largely be basing their voting decision on the personality of the candidates, their backgrounds, rather than where they come down on some specific political issues. So let's talk about, therefore, this rise of Andrew, there's the impact now of our seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. Well, like I did before with our other presidents, some more so than others, Andrew Jackson could be argued that he was a presidential candidate that probably would not have got far in the race or progressed far in the race if we, he had been in the age of modern television. Andrew Jackson had a fiery personality that clearly went with that fiery mane of unruly red hair. His face was pockmarked due to severe acne as a teenager. He clearly had his true testimony of uh, contributions in the military with the few scal uh, scars that he had on his face and neck. He was also an individual that was known, shall we say, to spray his listeners with the saliva when he talked. And if by chance you angered the president, it would be not unknown for him to step forward, get even closer to you, now speaking with even much more force and gusto. You might as well grab a bar of soap and kill two birds with one stone. Get your shower in at the same token. Listen to the president berating you for whatever he might not have agreed upon. Jackson also was his own man, though. He was a commoner. He didn't come from money, and he didn't try to toe the line that he did.
He was our first president to serve, not with one, but two bullets in him that he wouldn't allow the uh, surgeons to remove because the doctors, well, you know them, they're part of that elite class and he didn't trust them. So both bullets stayed in him. To our knowledge, he's the first American president to have an assassination attempt directly pointed at him. Coming down the steps of the Capitol, President Jackson thought he saw a man that seemed to be a little out of place running towards him. And sure enough, his observation was correct because the would-be assassin pulled out a handheld weapon, a pistol, and pointed it at Jackson's abdomen and pulled the trigger. But the gun misfired. The would-be assassin obviously anticipated that. So with his other hand, he pulled out another pistol, pointed it at Jackson's abdomen, pulled the trigger, but that gun also misfired. A few minutes later, witnesses surrounding the president and his would-be assassin finally separated the two men to save his life. No, not the life of Andrew Jackson. He was defending himself just fine, but to save the life of the assassin wannabe because of the way his face and body was getting pounded to a pulp by the president of the United States. Jackson was truly his own Secret Service detail, as well as the president of the United States. On an ironic note, both of those handheld weapons were taken to the back of the White House in the backyard, essentially, the White House lawn. And both weapons, having two bullets put in each, attempted to be fired, and they fired flawlessly. The chances of that happening are beyond unbelievable, to the point that if there was a lottery in the day, I would have been advising Jackson to buy the tickets. And if not, would he mind giving me the numbers? Because that man had some serious luck. So what's with the appeal then of Andrew Jackson? First off, he believed that when he was going to live in the White House, that he was not living in his house. It was not the president's mansion, as had been referred to by prior presidents. Rather, it was the people's house, and it was a tool for the people. He believed, however, that the real authority was in the presidency and that the power of the presidency, which is why the the power of the presidency will expand under Andrew Jackson, because he will be an expansionist in his interpretation of his constitutional rights and powers. Now, while it may seem that I have Jackson on a pedestal, let's look at the other side of him, which in some cases definitely does not is, is no compliment. First off, he was not a believer in checks and balances. It absolutely angered him that the Senate actually had to confirm his cabinet picks, that the Senate had to confirm his picks for the United States Supreme Court. He, he didn't understand that. They're, 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 if the Constitution says I'm the one that picks these individuals, well, then let me pick them. And my cabinet members, they're the ones advising me. If I do a bad job picking them, that should fall on me. That's my own, that's my own fault. But that's not what the Constitution, when the subsequent Congresses had hammered out with how cabinet members are to be installed. So again, this will definitely be a a knock against him. The second part, too, but I do want to uh, expand on it, though, so please don't turn the podcast off right after I say this second negative aspect of Andrew Jackson, was that he was also a believer in the creation of the spoils system. By spoils system, that was giving loyal people federal jobs, even if they weren't necessarily qualified. 
Yes, clearly that is a drawback. This is the reason why to this day we have the Pendleton Civil Service Act and of producing the, uh, the civil service exam so that we do have people moving into federal jobs that should have the proper knowledge, skills, and ability. They call them the KSAs, knowledge, skills, and abilities. And a series of tests and different types of examinations allows the candidate for a particular position to demonstrate their uh, aptitude or to what extent they have in the three areas, again, of knowledge, skills, and abilities. That said, as I mentioned earlier, just a few seconds ago, let me also look at this from Andrew Jackson's perspective. Other than John Quincy Adams, Jackson's immediate predecessor, of course, one-term president, every other president of the United States prior to him was a founding father. The individuals that worked in the what we would call today the War Department and State Department in the White House they, Jackson assumed, were loyal to the founding father generation. No, John Quincy Adams was too young to be considered a founding father, but he was that second generation. And Jackson was leery that people loyal to President Adams could not be loyal to him. So he wiped out, and yes, in many cases unnecessarily, many, many federal jobs by people that were clearly, clearly qualified, that now had the experience of being in the position for, in some cases, a matter of decades. Jackson wiped them all out because he wanted his own people installed, people that he knew would be loyal to him. Please know, though, that what I said earlier was true. Many of these people were not qualified. To date, for example, Jackson had one of the largest gatherings inside the White House to celebrate his inauguration on March 4th, 1829. Please know that, too, adjusting for inflation, Andrew Jackson still hosted the most expensive inaugural ball since. No one president has ever broken that record. It's not how much money he personally spent for the party. It's not how much the taxpayers spent in preparation for the party. It's what the taxpayers spent to repair and replace the massive amounts of destruction that took place to the White House. The friends and family and supporters of Andrew Jackson trashed the White House. Almost everything was taken as souvenirs from this fine silver, the china, the stemware, the curtains, even area rugs were rolled up and hauled out of there as having a token of one of their own as now president of the United States. The staff of the White House were beside themselves with grief, looking at way the White House was trashed the following day. And it didn't help that Andrew Jackson comes down, not looking in the best of shape because of his revelry the night before, lets out a loud burp, and then asks anybody listening, which ways is to my office? Which way or how do I get to my office? They were beside themselves, as I say, with their, with their reaction there to the way that inaugural ball took place the night before. All right, so briefly, let's look at two major impacts of the Jackson presidency. Please note that so much of what I just described in terms of his personality, the people that he's surrounded himself with, all of this again is going to play into the, the accomplishments that the man has. First off is the Indian Removal Policy and the, what became known as the Indian Removal Act. Technically it was passed by his predecessor, 
but he is going to be the one to enforce it. So the Indian Removal Act revises of 1830 appropriated money for the states to deal with the issues of conflicts with Native Americans. However, the funds that the federal government issued to the states did have stipulations. One is that the removal was voluntary. So in other words, the state militias could approach Native American tribes still established going back long before the discovery by Columbus and his subsequent uh, individuals and the explorers in the age of discovery, that the Native Americans, that if they're going to leave, removal was voluntary. And you're ready for this? If you're driving, make sure you got both hands firmly on the wheel. Because if they didn't leave voluntarily, well, then the state militia could use force. Yeah, let me repeat that. The conditions for states to use the federal funding in the Native American, the Indian Removal Act, is that the money was for states to deal with the issues. However, removal of the Native Americans was voluntary unless they refused. And if they refused, why only then could the state's militias use force? It was a horrible hypocrisy. That was a look the other way, a carte blanche, a blank check for Andrew Jackson to allow state militias to simply point their weapons at the heads of these Native American tribes and force them to abandon the lands, in some cases that they had occupied for centuries. It is part of the reason why 25% on average of the Native American reservations that were abandoned, where 25% would die during the deportation. Please know, which is what is not as commonly known, remember that when the Native Americans, at this point in our American history, Americans are simply removing the Native Americans to the Mississippi River Valley and a little further out west. So, yes, you might say, wait a minute, I thought that they were eventually forced all the way to the West Coast. No, 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 no. Unfortunately, we're going to get there. For Andrew Jackson at this time, when America is clearly now inhabiting and um, occupying all land consistently east of the Mississippi River Valley to the East Coast, including Florida, as well as all the way north to modern day Maine, Native American tribes are being eradicated moved to the Mississippi River Valley or however further west they want to go. While, yes, it is accurate, as some American soldiers noted, that, well, we really didn't treat the Native Americans any differently than other tribes treated the Native Americans with force, with violence. But let's look at it from the Native's point of view. When the Native Americans were being eradicated from their lands in modern-day southern Georgia, western Tennessee, and Kentucky, they're moving off of land that they know and have known for centuries. They know the weather systems. They know the bugs. They know the animals. They know the lay of the land, what grows well and what doesn't grow well. You are now forcing them to pick up everything that they own and move them west. Well, number one, they're moving onto land at best is land they don't know and have no idea the lay of the land and what weather systems affect them out west. That's, again, best case scenario. Worst case scenario is they're being moved to land already occupied by other Native American tribes. 
that look at these invading natives, of course, with uh, disdain and violence. And yes, oftentimes violence erupted in between. But that was no fault of the natives who were forced to be on their feet moving west. Obviously, or needless to say, even in this podcast, that as the Native Americans are being forced to up and run, there's nothing along the way that they can stop to for sustenance. Any water needs to be, that needs to be consumed has to be found from a potable water source. It's a guess as to what uh, river water is safe out west because, again, it's land they don't know. Any food that they're going to eat has to be brought down or stolen from other existing Native American tribes. This is what contributes to the high death rate as a result of the deportation. And clearly a negative mark on the Jackson presidency. Well, is there anything, Jackson is a two-term president, is there anything that I can mention here that puts him on the level here as being a popular uh, two-term president? Absolutely. It was his handling of what became known as the nullification crisis. The tariff of 1828, 1828, now we're still in the John Quincy Adams presidency, but the tariff of 1828 was slapped on to European goods coming into the United States so that American goods could be sold within our states more competitively. Needless to say, slapping tariffs on incoming goods can hurt different sectors of the economy in different ways. If you were even loosely paying attention to the early days of the Trump administration, you saw what happened when Trump tried to slap tariff, higher tariffs coming in on Chinese steel and other goods. Well, as Trump said, he wanted more fair practices in the trading that took place between China and the United States, and Trump felt that we were getting the short end of the stick for the past several 10 years plus. However, him slapping the tariff on the import incoming Chinese goods, they also then slapped higher tariffs on American goods going into China. So it works both ways. However, please know that at this particular time, the industrial, don't think industrial like industrial revolution, but the more industrial oriented North that was far more into producing finished products and in textiles, there's more wiggle room in their creation of producing products in order to handle a repetitive tariff or a disciplinary type tariff that China or other countries might slap on American goods. They can perhaps use lesser quality material. They can raise the prices a little bit. They could eliminate a worker or two. In other words, the textile mills of the North, they had more wiggle room to absorb the tariff wars that were liable to ensue. That's not the same for the agricultural South. They are producing raw materials in massive volumes where there's not nearly as much wiggle room as to how they can necessarily make the produce their goods any cheaper. Go with, go with lesser quality, cheaper seeds, you're going to get lesser quality plants. In other words, again, they don't have the wiggle room that the manufacturers in the North did. So the South largely repudiated this tariff. Come on, Jackson, you have to understand that. You are one of our own. Therefore, the state of South Carolina repudi repudiated the tax and said, we will not insist, insist on uh, taxing or slapping the tariff on incoming European goods. 
Well, they also, the reason for South Carolina's boldness is they had a higher up in their back pocket. Jackson's vice president, John C. Calhoun, endorsed the plan to defend the states. Remember again, however, he is only the vice president. He has no constitutional authority to actually repudiate the tariff. However, at a dinner function, he went toe-to-toe with President Jackson, talking that, reminding the president that he was the president of the United, finish that for me, states. We are a republic. Therefore, we have a degree of independence. Jackson, while he was sympathetic to the Southerners' plight, could not let the South's repudiation of the tariff go unchecked. If one state feels that it can repudiate, ignore, or nullify a federal law or federal mandate, where is it going to end? Is there any degree of united in us, in us Americans that call ourselves the United States? So Calhoun made his argument. Jackson, however, made his, threatening to the use of federal forces if the South didn't back down. Ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, they did. But do not for a moment think that this was not establishing the seeds and laying the seeds for the eventual civil war of the United States. This is where, as I stress to my classes, it is not slavery that drives the South to take up arms against the North. It's the idea of states' rights that will eventually drive the South to war with the North. It did not start with the institution of slavery. Slavery was the human face on the American Civil War. The idea boiled down to states' rights. Where and how does the state have the ability to maintain its independence in relationship not only to the states around it, but to the federal government as a whole. And this is the reason why, as I say, and I have my students write it down, Jackson's response is in Calhoun's as well, the vice president, is where the seeds were sown for the future American Civil War. Jackson steps down after two terms. To our knowledge, he had as much as much as he had interest in who was going to succeed him. He obviously dumped John Calhoun from his ticket and ran with Martin Van Buren, his vice president, going forward. However, as Jackson stepped down, Martin Van Buren seemed to be the favored child of Andrew Jackson and therefore was elected as the eighth president of the United States. However, Martin Van Buren would become now our third president that would be a one-term president. And what they found out is that essentially a pattern was beginning to emerge with our one-term presidents, that it's very difficult for an open seat for somebody to move in when an incumbent retires after leaving office after two terms. It's very difficult to establish your own your own independence, to try to be your own person when you're on the heels of an extremely popular president.
that was reason why some people said that John Adams was doomed from the start, not just because he was John Adams, but because he was coming in on the heels of the great George Washington. Anybody trying to follow Washington to be the second president might have been doomed to be a, a, a one-term president. And uh, John uh, James Madison, obviously you could say refuted that trend because of the way, again, that Je Jefferson, who was an extremely popular two-term president, why did Madison stay in for two terms? Largely because Madison was Jefferson's Secretary of State, considered to be the architect of that Louisiana Purchase. So therefore, he was able to partially ride his own coattails, as well as that of Jefferson, to succeed him and stay in for two terms. James Monroe coming in, very popular again with that Monroe Doctrine. John Quincy Adams coming in with that, what became known as the secret deal between him and Henry Clay, plagued his presidency from the start, largely dooming him to be a one-term president. Andrew Jackson now comes in, extremely popular two-term president, knocking down that national bank because he said it worked against American interests and against the common American, the common man, as he said. So Martin Van Buren tries to ride those coattails in. It's not going to happen. And ladies and gentlemen, it's not going to happen for another eight presidents. Andrew Jackson will be our last two-term president until number 16, that, of course, of Abraham Lincoln. So what about Andrew, Martin Van Buren was so difficult with the start? with his term. Well, number one is not only that he was trying to continue to hold the mantle as being a loyal, a loyalist to, and as for a Jacksonian Democrat, but there was a brand new political party that was also starting in the United States. And unfortunately, Martin Van Buren was in the crosshairs and wasn't able to wiggle out as a result. From there is where we'll talk about in the next episode, the brief presidency of Martin Van Buren. And then we're going to get into our first constitutional crisis in the American presidency in the past several decades, when our first American president, unfortunately, will die in office. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have or book recommendations. If you like what was discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.